hello, hello, and welcome back to Open Swim. I'm Hallie Bram Kogelshots, and I'm here per usual with Eric Kogelshots, Jennifer Cho Salif, and Brian Andrew Jasinski. One of the first things that we wanted to talk about today had to do with some of the ads that have come out since last we appeared on this podcast. There's been a lot in the news. We had the Jenner Pepsi ad debacle. We are the lions. We are the chosen. We're going to shine out of the dark. We are the movement. This generation. You better know. with follow-up satire on SNL. Thank you for asking. What's up? Uh, hey, I just want to run this Pepsi commercial by you that I'm doing. Uh, make sure you're loving it as much as I am. The whole thing is sort of an homage to the resistance, Black Lives Matter. So everybody's marching. And then Kendall Jenner comes up to a police officer and gives him a Pepsi. Everybody celebrates. People of every single culture come to get... So, Jen, I, I know that you have some some feelings on the Pepsi spot, and I'm wondering if maybe you can talk about what the Pepsi spot was, what we're seeing there, and then we can begin to unpack what we were feeling as a result. Yeah, it's interesting because Pepsi, they produced this commercial. I'm sure many, many, many people have seen it. I mean, on YouTube, it's almost 10 million views. So, and it was just distributed early April, but then Pepsi pulled the commercial. So the commercial follows, you know, it's, it's showing the diversity of America. There's a lot of young, of course, beautiful people, and they're getting swept up into what looks like a protest. Kendall Jenner is um, doing what she does. She's at a modeling shoot, um, and she gets swept up into this protest, um, you know, there's the guy playing the cello leaves to go march in the streets and then he kind of gives her a nod and she decides she wants to be part of this too and she pulls off her blonde wig, which I guess was supposed to symbolize liberation and freedom, and then she joins this protest. But I think that the part that was the most, um, I think <laughs> what people found the most offensive is she takes uh, a Pepsi from someone in the crowd and then um, there's a... You know, the police barricading uh, on the sidelines, and she approaches one of the police officers. All these, you know, cops are really good looking too for the commercial, by the way. And she approaches one of them and hands him a Pepsi, and then everyone just, it's like kumbaya scene, and everyone gets along. And so everyone was upset because A, it was, I mean, the, the word the words tone deaf is getting, you know, really um, volleyed around. Everyone's talking about just how tone deaf this commercial was. And then, it's always, you know, people have their opinions about the Kardashians. So the fact that you have a Kardashian in in a in this commercial and she's the one that's handing this Pepsi and everybody's suddenly getting along. And then I think the tagline was "Live for Now," and um, I don't know if you guys saw, but Stephen Colbert did this great commentary on the Pepsi commercial, and he was kind of making making fun of the tagline "Live for Now," and he's like, "Yeah, live for now." And uh, <laughs> that one was really funny because it Comma. made me think about, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like for now, made me think about whose heads are rolling over at Pepsi. So, like, as Hallie was mentioning about, there's been a lot of just satire around it. SNL did a really great sketch. I think that's that following Saturday of whenever this ad was deployed. And it's um, the director of this 
so-called uh, the so-called director he's supposed to be the director and he's speaking with a friend about how exciting it is he's doing this pepsi commercial and he can't wait and everyone's on set and they're about to you know go live and that his friend on the other line is you know he's talking to him and obviously it's, it's like a horrible idea and he's on the phone he's like oh oh you don't you don't think that's a great wait what no 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 it's, it's supposed to be an homage to black lives matter it's supposed to be Wait, what? Don't don't even touch that. Oh, don't even talk about that. <laughs> so <laughs> funny, and I think that's how everybody was feeling. I saw that sketch. I'm like, that's exactly like who who green lit this thing. I mean, um, what's it? It connects to to what we talked about with Fashion Week. Is when does inclusivity become offensive? Where when you are using these cultures and these symbols as a, a check mark on a box of of things you know showing that you're being inclusive by yes we're including this race we're including this cultural reference this religious reference i think it really loses its authenticity yeah it's well, almost like they're being heavy-handed with it just we got to include everybody include the you know as many people of color as you can include the woman with the hijab and i mean <laughs> i mean i don't know if that's they sought to do that but i i think that pepsi's in-house firm is called creators league studio they're the ones who created it i have a feeling that they felt like this was their shepherd fairy moment the one illustration he did with uh, the rose and the gun like i think that's what they were going for here but clearly they were way off well and i think you know obviously you can draw a lot of comparisons to what coke did in the 70s and there's been a lot of discussion around that as well it's kind of funny because I, I mean, I have to go back and rewatch my Mad Men like once a year so I can get my John Ham fix. And I just went through rewatching all of the final season. And obviously it ends with that ad and um, thinking, you know, obviously about what was going on in that time frame and how that content was received because of the times that people were living in versus how this ad was received. Um, it's it's very interesting to think about because in some ways, um, they're very, very similar. The execution's completely different. Um, but it was leveraging a culture-based movement to make a point about a commercial product. And I think it opens up a big discussion about when that's appropriate, how it's appropriate. Does it have to do with execution or does it have to do with the consumer and how their tastes have changed as far as what level of tolerance they have for commercial products inserting themselves into societal movements i'm just curious like what what about it like dissecting just for a few minutes here what about it um is tone deaf like if you were to explain to somebody who just arrived from mars and they don't understand american culture and they don't understand subtext and all that so what about it is tone deaf and what would how would you repackage that and make it better and make it not tone deaf, not offensive, not, you know, appropriating all these cultures insensitively because it's so nuanced. Yeah. It's so right. So, well, and I think, you know, in, in defense of the creative team that developed it, I think in their mind, part of what they were thinking is we have people of various, you know, ages and races and ethnicities and religions all marching together. And isn't that beautiful? Um, and trying to show this menagerie of Americans um, and and talk about how we're all in it together. So I think in their defense, it's what they were trying to do. But I think 
again, to your point, Jen, it's like, why was it tone deaf versus what happened with Coke in the 70s? Well, I think that's it. I, you said it earlier, Hallie. I, th- I think from a brand perspective, it felt more like a Coca-Cola commercial. Like the spot that Hallie was referencing, you know, I'd like to buy the world of Coke, had that kind of movement and feeling to it. Now, I'm not saying Coke should have done what Pepsi did, but I don't understand why Pepsi tried to do this. You know, it, it, I understand voice of a generation, all that jazz, but just it doesn't fit for that brand. I don't. I don't yeah. Believe. And I, I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the wake of this about do brands need to take a stand? I actually saw a really interesting piece on Sunday morning last week. They had representation from Ad Age and what they were talking about on the segment was that brands feel a pressure to take a stand on politicized issues now. There's sort of like an expectation set that they have to take a stand because if they don't say anything, then, you know, customers think that they're apathetic. So I think that that's the bigger question, Jen. You know, it's not necessarily about the creative execution, but it's the the strategy behind it. And would we have felt that, you know, as a beverage company, you know, would we have felt that that was necessary? Um and, you know, obviously it's more than just the product. It's their branding, it's their positioning and whatnot. And that's that's why that I would expect they wanted to get involved in the conversation. But I think if you were to say, you know, what would we have done differently? I think we'd have to really think about their customer. So on the flip side, you know, as an example of a brand that I think has done it really well, I think all of us have seen that Heineken um, video that was deployed this week. And, you know, just for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, you're seeing truly an experiment that was done bringing people together of differing viewpoints. I would describe my political views as the new right. I say that I'm left. Feminism today is man-hating. I would describe myself as a feminist 100%. I don't believe that climate change exists. We're not taking enough action on climate change. I think it's about time these people got off the high horse and started looking for credible problems that actually exist. It's absolutely critical that trans people have their own voice. That's not right. You can't, you know, you're, you're a man, be a man, or you're a female, be a female. Women do need to remember that we need you to have our children. Could I be friends with someone that says a woman's place is in the home? Um. So, you know, they bring them together. They don't know why they're there. They don't know um, that they're about to engage in an experiment with somebody who has very different viewpoints from how they think and feel. And they put them through this experiment of essentially building a bar. And at the end of it, what they do is the bar is built and they project pre-recorded videos on the wall of each of the people. So just the two people in the room. Um, and the video is being projected of each of them stating their viewpoints on these topics that draw them apart and after the videos are played you know an audio track comes over the loudspeaker that says you know if you'd like to you know continue the conversation you can sit down at the bar and essentially have a beer with this person or you can leave and in every instance these and there were three different instances I believe that these people sit down at the bar and they have a conversation and it's really um, obviously underscoring the point that there's more that, you know, aligns us than tears us apart. 
And um, so, you know, it's it really is in stark contrast to what Pepsi did, because a lot of people are feeling like, okay, well, that's the that's the right way to do it. That's the right way to talk about some of these societal issues that are taking place and and this divide that we're all feeling um, and doing it with optimism and not just positivity, but authenticity. So, um, you know, I, I, I thought that was a really nice example. It's, it's straightforward. It's, it's pretty simple. I think Eric, you know, when we watched it, made a really good point about how they did a good job of weaving the product in without being, you know, heavy-handed about yeah. it. I mean, it's there. You know and it's there's, coming. There's a purpose <laughs> behind it as well. Yeah. There's that beer, that Heineken is the thing that brings them together to continue the conversation as the spot completed where and I think what you just said about the authenticity behind that commercial that's what's missing from the Pepsi commercial it's pushing a button to push a button and it's you know basically uh rolled in glitter and to make it look you know fantastic you know Jen you just said the cops are all hot and all the people in the protest are well-dressed and look obviously they all went through styling and what I was going to speak to earlier I think what I I find to be toned up about that ad is the beautification of something that's often very brutal so the fact that a protest where people are being maced and pushed and beat up and left bloodied the fact that it became this music video that a, a can of soda made happen is rather offensive and and that re- it really struck me when i saw a meme of an actual protest with a young woman having her hair pulled by a police officer and you know making light of the pepsi commercial it said hey kendall can you please hand this cop a pepsi and it's ridiculous yes. but that's really what the commercial was implying that this can of soda is going to end the violence. It's going to bring everyone together and suddenly everyone's going to get along. And it's just absolutely preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. And I think the fact that it is a Jenner just adds a whole nother layer of it. And, and the SNL spoof, you know, pinned that really subtle, annoyance that people have well maybe it's not a subtle annoyance but in a subtle way they pin the whole with her at the end of that commercial being like it's cute right you know and it it, and i think that speaks to the commercial it's just this shimmery pop bright you know uh and i get it they were trying to be aspirational but it's just there's not one root of reality in that spot and i think that's why the uproar happened and I think the fact that if Pepsi truly believed in that spot, they would not have pulled it as easily as they had. And I, I think, too, one thing that Heineken really did a great job of was they took kind of this cultural ritual of sitting down and having a beer to either have a difficult conversation or celebration. And you actually saw both of those things happen in that spot where people there was that great point intense friction of the the personalities and beliefs coming together yeah uncertainty and then all of a sudden before you knew it it was this celebration where the one um couple the two individuals they shared phone numbers like mm-hmm. it's just it's just really amazing what they did there it just showed that human connection and brian i feel like you just nailed it on the head with pepsi i think it's the um 
the lack of authenticity, everything was staged. These are all actors. This mm-hmm. is not a real protest. And yeah, making it glittery and shimmery is almost mocking the reality of, of what happens. Exactly. Right. And then, but the Heineken ad, it was, yeah, it was staged. I mean, but they had real people come in and talk to each other. That was much more genuine. It wasn't, you know, it was staged in terms of they had props. They had, they had a, you know, a script in terms of they had something that they were supposed to do and, and to set up to, you know, that, that storyline. But these are real people with, th- it's just much more relatable. Like when you watch the Pepsi commercial, there's, you don't relate to that. It's a performance. Because, exactly. Yeah. And especially if you took part in these protests or if you went to the Women's March or if you did go to Black Lives Matter March, that's not what you experienced in that commercial. But the Heineken ad, yeah, you would sit down with somebody and, I think, and well, and one thing, mm-hmm. one thing I would definitely add to it too is I think that there is, you know, in our business, a lot of times in, in this world of communications, marketing, advertising, strategy, I think that there is a feeling on behalf of clients of obligation in certain, certain circles. So whether it's topical obligation or obligation by channel, you know, for example, right now, one of the things we experience pretty frequently is, um, you know, clients making inquiries into how should we be using Facebook Live? And it reminds me a lot of, you know, years and years ago of clients asking about, we need a viral video, you know, and it was just because they knew that this was something that was of the moment, and they wanted to, you know, somehow harness that energy. And um, I, I think that it's really important to think about your strategy as a brand and if something is truly on brand on strategy or if you're just trying to you know kind of take advantage of what's happening in societal trends or somehow you know kind of capture the magic of a certain tactical um you know kind of channel even if that's not right for your brand so i think it's it's about purpose it's about being purposeful um, and, you know, thinking through what makes sense for you and not necessarily just jumping on a bandwagon, whether it's by channel or by topic. Absolutely. And it, like Eric said, the beer makes sense at the end because it is that brings them together. And it's that ritual that you spoke to, which connects the commercial to the topic. And also Heineken wasn't afraid to go to a place that could have very potentially not have been successful you know so the fact that they were able to take these these conversations that are uncomfortable and maybe not glamorous whereas pepsi took something that is very a very uncomfortable movement that's happening in the country and and make it into this pop celebration in the streets i think that's the big difference between the two you know, obviously, you know, this is one of the more controversial, um, you know, uh, emotionally charged spots that, that has come out, um, you know, talking about Pepsi. But there are a couple of other things that are really interesting that we've seen recently. And one of them is from Burger King. And, you know, it's very, very clever, um, but also causing controversy in a different way. So the Burger King spot is actually only, only 15 seconds. And it starts with an employee at Burger King who says, You're watching a 15-second Burger King ad, which is unfortunately not enough time to explain all the fresh ingredients in the Whopper sandwich. But I got an idea. Okay, Google, what is the Whopper burger? At which point, people in their homes, if they have Google Home, it activates and then brings up the Wikipedia page for Whopper and lists off the ingredients. So some people don't like this because it's very overt and it gets right into your home. But I think people need to be educated about what's in their home. And this is the new world you're going to be in. You know, 
there will be more rules in place as we move forward. Google Home reacted very quickly and made it and disabled that feature. So it wouldn't happen again when the spot ran. But I thought it was actually a brilliant approach. It's very clever. It is. I mean, it's just the beginning of how AI is going to be used with brands and in, and in marketing. But I just think consumers need to stay informed about it. They threw a hammer through the fourth wall in a way no AI has oh, done yeah. before. Yeah. I mean, that they shattered so the screen and suddenly that ad surrounded you. And and I think that's why it's controversial. Is some people felt it it attacked them, you know, because suddenly their home, their the this place or wherever they were watching was reacting to this commercial and and I think more than ever forcing you to engage with a product and a message so we have Burger King who activates this system in your home McDonald's took quite a different approach where with the latest round of spots that have been put out by We Are Unlimited for McDonald's. These spots feature actress Mindy Kaling. According to some there's a place where Coca-Cola tastes like so good Go ahead, do a Google search for that place where Coke tastes so good. McDonald's is never mentioned. I, when I first was confronted with this commercial, I knew right away it was for McDonald's because of the staging. It's a, a red set and she's wearing a very bright yellow dress. So right there, there's just that brand color connection. That recognition. Brand yeah. recognition. But much, so it's quite the opposite of what Burger King did where they, you know, you know it's Burger King and they speak to the screen in a way that's activating the system in your home and suddenly you're being told about Burger King whether you like it or not they are actually inviting you to Google that place where Coke tastes so good and obviously then it takes you to McDonald's and that's what's in your Google search Um, I think on several levels this is successful because it pushes a pop culture legend you know everybody talks about like oh the fountain soda at McDonald's oh, is yeah. better than anywhere else. You know, what is it? What's so different about that? Um, you know, they're also um, speaking to the way people want to receive information these days. And this harkens back to what we talked about in the first podcast where I spoke about um, shopping and how I like the idea of the hunt and not having everything presented to me. So Burger King, where they, again, they literally assault you with the information, whether you like it or not. This is inviting you to engage and and discover, you know, what is she talking about exactly? Mm, um, that's a really good comparison, Brian. Yeah. And the other, what's so smart about this ad is they are responding to how teenagers and millennials engage with television and their mobile devices. Um, more than not, they have that mobile device in their hand and they're interacting while they're watching TV. And it also speaks to the idea of discovering information for yourself, but also being influenced by word of mouth. You know, you, through social media and through texting and Facebook. like That's the way we learn about products and movies and trends that are out there. Uh, and, and even news. You know, I remember the Paris attacks that happened in late 20, 2015. Let me say that again. The Paris attacks that happened in late 2015, I was engaged to go to a news site because suddenly I started seeing pray for Paris hashtags and I had no idea what had happened so you know everybody talks about oh Facebook is not a a news source but I think it is because that's one of the first places people report national and international news for sure so that's why I think this you know I'm not a fan of the Burger King ad because I do think it's 
invasive. I, and Eric, I know you like it because it's it's speaking just this technology. So I think that's what's an interesting comparison. Maybe we could get together over Heineken <laughs> and talk about this. Well, no, but, I, um, I but, do. Uh, what I what I love about the McDonald's ad is that it invites you to f- find out the information for yourself. So yeah, no, I'm I, not denying that the Burger King ad isn't so smart, but I don't like the approach. Well, and I think that's the bigger discussion, right? It's like just because something is there, you know, in this case, technology, is it responsible to use it? You know, is it, you know, is it a right fit for the brand? I think that Burger King obviously has done some things in the last 20 years to be sort of the clever, clever alternative to McDonald's, Um, whether or not they would describe their strategy that way or not. Yeah. Yeah, Like with the King, the King head. that's what I keep thinking, you know, like all of that, you know, so I think for them, you know, tonally it, it feels like a fit. Um, but you know, it is a little bit divergent and obnoxious mm-hmm. and you know, whether or not they want to be seen that way is sort of right. like a troublemaker. Maybe they do. Right. Um, but maybe, uh, maybe you and I are just not in the target audience, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> We're McDonald's yeah. people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now I want fries. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now I want a I Coke. Mean, yeah. I do think that, like I said, it, it, for Burger King, it's completely on brand. I do think, I agree with Brian that McDonald's is, a, that's a much better spot. For two reasons, and you already said them. One is the the use of the customer insight around their fountain. Coca Cola is like the best, right? And that's documented anywhere in conversation. If you use social intelligence, you can find it online and in social media platforms. So that alone is a, a starting point for their strategy is brilliant. And then I think it's a nice transformation for McDonald's as they move into this new territory. You know, a lot of people don't want to drink pop anymore they don't Mm -hmm. want fast food but their brand felt very relevant in that spot i think it piques people's interest too for those that don't like i don't personally drink a lot of soda but after seeing those spots i remember the you know how coke tastes at mcdonald's and um, i think it for people who don't drink soda or they don't you know they look at soda as junk food i think it piques people's interest like oh maybe i should try it if everybody's you know it's kind of like FOMO the feeling of missing out you don't want to be missing out so maybe I should try that and isn't it so interesting that you are responding that you want to go enjoy a coke so badly as opposed to those commercials that are usually all about the sound of you know the coke pouring in over the ice and the fizz and the condensation on the glass like none of that has ever affected you but suddenly when it's just implied you're ready to go through the drive-through. It's like a, it's like a little game of cat and mouse. Yeah, I think people like that mystery and intrigue, and right. It's it's kind of what we talked about in the last podcast about authenticity, being genuine, and not not necessarily wanting to be quote sold to. But this way, you're not necessarily being sold to. You're just kind of being invited into like, ooh, this mystery and intrigue, and what is this? And well, I and part find of what out. I'm what I'm curious about, just listening to the two of you talk, is you know, the, for a long time. You know, with consu- with B2C consumer-driven advertising, especially product-based advertising, you would always hear the mantra of, like, sex sells or something like that. And, you know, they're changing attitudes because of, you know, social media and the way that we consume content. Um, and this psychological, um, for better or worse, kind of preying on people's fears of, you know, either missing out or being the last to know or, you know, my life doesn't appear as glamorous as others. I need to get on there and start posting. You know, so maybe this is the new iteration of sex sells, you know, and playing into 
I need to have that Coke, not because like they're making it mouth watering. And I feel like it's so delicious. And so like, you know, you think about Coke and Pepsi and the celebrities that have been involved with them over the years, you know, the Britney Spears of the world or Michael Jackson's or whomever. And, um, you know, that maybe that's not the modern way to sell those products anymore. Maybe it is preying on the psychological um, kind of neuroses of people and making them feel like, hey, if you don't have this, then you're not part of the it crowd. And it's, it's kind of a swing back for me to um, some of the sort of mindset, you know, kind of existence of the 1980s, like the, the you know, big man on campus, kind of like popular guy making, you know, the jocks seem important and the nerds feel irrelevant. Like it kind of feels that way to me. So it'll be interesting to see how, um, how things progress and, um, you know, behavioral trends and marketing as a result. So, Brian, it's interesting that you mentioned the hashtag Pray for Paris and how because of that hashtag, it prompted you to go on your newsfeed and find out what was going on and what that hashtag meant. And it's interesting how when we're talking about Facebook and how Facebook has become um, the source for people to get their news, um, just reading real quick some stats, it's bigger than any um, you know, American or European t- TV news network, larger than any newspaper magazine in the Western world, larger than any online news outlet, and um, it's really the the place where people get their news. And um, you know, unfortunately, also tragic news and things that are happening, current events wise. I mean, just most recently, um, finding out about the the horrible tragedy with Facebook Live and the gentleman in Cleveland who broadcast live the um, basically a murder and um, that was just kind of hit home to us personally you know our firm is based here in Cleveland and for us we've actually been talking about Facebook a decent amount over the last few episodes of Open Swim Um, back in episode two we talked about the future of search and how Google and YouTube and Facebook are really the three platforms you need to think about um, and in that, we discussed the use of video tab and how that's something they want to focus on. And, and it was a recently launched um, feature of Facebook and how they want to focus on it more. And then this was the outcome. Then in episode three, we talked about the Google controversy over the extremist content on YouTube and how Google and Facebook need to provide more controls for users and brands to filter this content. So we started to see this trend of things that were happening and how these platforms need to be prepared for something that could be catastrophic. Catastrophic. And and that's what we saw on, on April 16th when Robert Godwin Sr. was killed in Cleveland. And actually just on April 24th, there was a 20-year-old man in, in Thailand who killed his 11-month-old daughter, and then committed suicide. And this was all done on Facebook as well. Now, you didn't hear about that. I don't think you heard about it that much, really, here in the States. It wasn't as widespread. It wasn't as widespread. What's interesting is everyone keeps talking about, oh, Google didn't respond to these things fast enough. Robert Godwin, um, in that situation, I believe they responded within three hours. It's the Thailand it? video is 24 hours. That video and was up that's the thing, for 24 right? hours before Facebook took it down. So I think part of the reason we got to this point is because it's it's through instrumental conditioning 
right? So as a culture, we've created this expectation that social media is a platform for performance. And people feel like they have to get on there and do something that's disruptive and share all this news. And and this is the type of result. You know, we've created this platform where people can really share anything. And then sadly, culture sits there as the car crash happens and they can't turn away. Over 1.6 million views of that video happened. I mean, that's just, it's horrible. I personally did not see it and I did not see the one in Thailand. I have no interest. I mean, I think if you know the topic, you, you get what happened. And it's all over the world. You know, there were um, journalists murdered on Facebook Live um, and the I think it was last year Dominican Republic or it was somewhere in Central America and then in Sweden somebody Facebook lived a rape I mean it's just it's 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 so like there's no words I want to say horrible but it's not even horrible that word doesn't even begin to explain just uh, it's just awful Um, it's interesting though how these things are happening close to home here in the United States but I didn't realize that more than a billion people engage with Facebook every day and how 85% of those who engage with Facebook are actually um, international. They're outside of the United Mm. States. So it's it's this larger problem that Facebook has to really get a handle on. And there's even been interviews, recent ones, uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. And he, you know, he, I think he kind of realizes that we have this incredible tool through Facebook Live, but it's also kind of this monster that's been created. And, and how do you well, it seems reconcile like they're, they're that. trying to figure out, you know, what to do about it because yeah. even they don't have an answer quite yet. Yeah. And I think he's been very upfront about that and the fact that it's going to be a process to figure out what they can and should do about this um, versus having like an easy fix. And I think that's what makes it so devastating because every time you see something catastrophic happen on Facebook it's like why are we seeing this again and I will say as a consumer of media it's becoming something that you know I used when Jen and I were talking about this before we got on air today I used the word depressed it's it's something that's making me depressed not even watching these videos because I too like Eric have not watched them just knowing that they're out there and that people are doing these grotesque things um, it just it, it depresses me every time I hear about it so you know, it's, it, it is interesting, um, the effect that this aspect of this very powerful tool um, can have on, on the way that you feel about a platform. You know, it does, you know, sort of make me slightly weary about um, going on and just blindly looking at my feed because you really don't know what's going to show up in your feed at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I remember years ago, there was a woman who was, you know, a student at my alma mater, Emerson College, who was attending, um, you know, a sporting celebration parade that was happening in downtown Boston. And um, she, she was killed. And um, the way that her family found out was that they saw her dead body on the front page of the Boston Globe. And um, that was being shared on social media and people were seeing it. And that image, you know, it was, you know, it sparked a lot of conversation at that time around responsibility of the media and what should and, and shouldn't be put out there. And, um, you know, and, and it was coming up in my feed. And so, you know, for me, it's like you don't have a choice if people are sharing this and it comes up in your feed. You don't have a choice um, but to see certain things. And especially with Facebook Live, um, those videos queue if you linger over them long enough. So you as a user have to be swift in, you know, moving through your feed in order not to um, 
you know, be exposed to some of that. Obviously, this brings up a lot of questions about users on Facebook, parental controls, all of that. But as we've all identified, also the responsibility of the channel um, and what they what they should be doing to um, ensure that there is some level of protection for those users that don't want to see this. Because I do think eventually, if this becomes too prevalent, you're going to see drop off in adoption of this platform. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are just getting to the point where they're like, I don't need to be inundated by that type of content or behavior. And they will start to move away from it. Um, so I, I, I welcome, you know, efforts by Facebook to, to tell us how they're going to protect us as users. And as we've identified also brands that might be on the platform using it for marketing purposes. So right, at, right after everything happened in Cleveland, uh, they had the Facebook developer conference and Zuckerberg got up there and said a few things. And one of the quotes that came out of that conversation was, we are going to work on building common ground, not just getting more opinions out there. Common ground to me means that Facebook wants to play the ethical role of a moderator. I would rather them be the principal, right? The leader instead of the guidance counselor. Uh, I think that the solution here that Facebook is scared to uh, admit is that we need more competition within this realm of these social networks that people are engaging in. Because right now, Facebook is the dominant one. Jen mentioned all the stats at the very beginning. So they have complete control, right? They're a monopoly at this point. So we need more competition. We need Twitter, Snapchat to step up. But I think it's going to be harder and harder to see that because, you know, even within the last year, we've had platforms buying platforms. So exactly. it's like Instagram is owned by Facebook. Exactly. I mean, it's very challenging to figure out, okay, well, how can that competition even exist when you have a giant in the category like this? I think that it has to be any kind of change, I think, is going to have to be um, sort of spurred by users and not necessarily spurred by the platforms themselves. So I think, um, you know, I, I always think back to, you know, years ago, um, Michael Rollman actually spoke at TEDxCLEE, this event that we put on here in Cleveland. And he talked about, you know, every time you go to the supermarket and you purchase something, you're making a vote with your dollars for more of that thing to be in that supermarket. Um, so if you go in there and you buy a chicken that you're going to prepare and roast lovingly at home, you're going to, you know, and it's a certain, you know, farm that the chicken is being raised, raised at, you're putting in your vote for more of that type of chicken to be stocked at your, um, at your supermarket. So I, I do think that it's the same thing with, with platforms and with users. And, you know, when you see um, a lots of, you know, like you say, like views or shares on content that, you know, is the type of content we're all talking about here, that's upsetting. Um, you know, it doesn't really incentivize the platform itself to um, move away from allowing that content to exist because what it shows them is that views you know views of that content are up users want that content whether we agree with it ethically or not um, and you know it you know while Mark Zuckerberg might say that they want to play an ethical role they're also at the end of the day a business and they have to decide what kind of business they want to be and when you are a business that's fueled by advertising and advertising is spurred by the more people you can get your ads in front of yeah. then it doesn't incentivize you to take away content where there are lots and lots of users lots and lots of eyeballs on that content so again it's a complex um challenge to be put out to facebook and other platforms like that um to think about okay well are you an ethical party or um do you really have to take um, as Eric said, the role of the disciplinarian versus, you know, the, the moderator or the, or the guidance counselor. 
one thing I think that is crazy is that right after the election, Zuckerberg came out and made a statement about social media and its impact on the election. And I have to read this quote because it's, it's, it really reflects what Halley just said. He said, resonant messages get amplified many times. This rewards simplicity and discourages nuance. At its best, this focuses messages and exposes people to different ideas. At its worst, it oversimplifies important topics and pushes us toward extremes. So he said that in January, February, I can't remember exactly when, and now we're in April, and, and the things that have recently occurred are out there. So and he's at least admitting that there is a problem. He, he is, <laughs> and that's is the no, first part, right? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know what the answer is. And, and you know, and I don't think it's fair to expect platforms like this to, to know what to do with it. Um, or to have a, a mechanism necessarily for dealing with this, because this has become a much more prevalent problem um, in very, very recent months here. Um, it's not that it hasn't been happening, but it's become, we've seen more instances of it. I would, you know, I don't know what the stats suggest, but I would, you know, as a, as a consumer of this you know, content in this channel, I, I feel like it's much more prevalent. I think there's like this, idea that as a platform they have the obligation to find that solution and i was doing a little bit of research on this and looking at the fcc and things that have happened in the past and in 1961 the chairman of the fcc newton minnow famously described tv as a vast wasteland and at this point it was when we really saw the fragmentation of media and technology. And he was quoted as saying to the tv industry your industry possesses the most powerful voice in america it has an inescapable duty to make that voice ring with intelligence and with leadership. In a few years, this exciting industry has grown from a novelty to an instrument of overwhelming impact on the American people. It should be making ready for the new kind of leadership that newspapers and magazines assumed years ago to make our people aware of their world. So that was in 1961. It just give that message. It can absolutely apply to Facebook. Exactly. And to... And to social media platforms exactly so like Kelly said i don't there's i don't think anyone can give that solution right now i think that's very difficult but this isn't a new problem really no i mean definitely not i mean i've seen a few articles too that have referenced um you know the 1974 um on-air suicide of christine chubbuck as well down in florida but the the difference is you know we're in a new world i mean when that happened in 1974 it was you know kind of recorded to tape that tape sat in a safe with the family for decades, and then it was turned over. Um, or I think that tape sat in a safe, I believe, with one of the media executives at the station and then was eventually turned over to the family. Um, but it never aired again because that was the way that broadcast television worked. Now we're in an era of digital recording where everything is, you know, should it be recorded and immediately uploaded online, um, there, there is no fail safe. There's no way of ensuring that, you know, you're taking concern for your viewers or your users. There's no way to do it yet um, without, you know, doing what television does with live broadcasting, which is to build in a delay. So I, I think that, um, you know, again, it, it, it comes back to this idea of responsibility and um, also, you know, purpose. And we talked a little bit about that on our last podcast, but just, you know, remaining true to your mission as, as a brand and um, not letting some of the business incentives get in the way.
different ways of getting information and entertainment and and whatnot. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for podcasts and the great medium that podcasts are. Holly, <laughs> tell us about some of the podcasts you've been listening to lately. Yeah, so I I am our resident podcast junkie over here. Um, I, I love listening to podcasts and I um, spend, you know, in the past I've spent lots of time on trains <laughs> listening to podcasts and now I find myself um, in the car quite a bit. Uh, for work and and shuttling kiddos around, so I I really love listening to podcasts um, when I'm on the go. So some of the things that I have been listening to recently that maybe some of you might be interested in as well. Um, obviously, since we last broadcast here on uh, Open Swim, the new podcast from the Serial Team came out called S Town, and um, I'm done with that. Um, and you know, just for anyone who is not done with that podcast, done listening to all seven chapters, um, you may want to mute your volume for a <laughs> few minutes because spoilers are ahead. But um, you know, the the podcast follows um, a resident of a small town in Alabama named John B. McLemore, and it talks about um, a relationship that he had with a reporter who was working with This American Life at the time, and, you know, he wanted him to come down south to investigate a, uh, what he said was, uh, you know, he suspected a murder had taken place in his town and that nobody was reporting on it. And the story kind of unfolds from there, but what, what happens, and this is the, the spoiler that many of you may not want to hear, but in the um, second chapter, it's revealed at the end of the um, episode that there was a death in that town, but that it wasn't the murder John was talking about. It was his own suicide. And so from there, the rest of the five chapters explore who this man was and, um, you know, what led him to commit suicide and the sort of, um, uh, turmoil over his estate that ensued as a result of him not having a will. And it's a fascinating podcast. It's a really interesting, you know, I hate to call it a character study because we're talking about a real person, um, but it's a fascinating look at who this man was and um, what it means to live in the rural South now. Um, And, you know, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's really, really good storytelling. There's a lot of, um, I think, uh, discussion about uh, journalistic responsibility and whether or not there was an invasion of this man's privacy as a result of the podcast being produced, um, given the fact that there's a lot of information that's revealed about him as a person that was done so without his consent. And, um, you know, ethics in journalism and whether or not Brian Reed violated um, some of those ethics because of the lack of consent. Although, you know, he does talk about that a little bit on the podcast and the fact that um, for various reasons, he feels that he can reveal these details. You know, for example, they were cor- uh, corroborated by other interviews that he had um, done with other residents of the town. So he didn't feel like he was violating confidences or the fact that, you know, in his mind, and maybe this is just his way of clearing his own conscience, but um, you know, saying, oh, well, John was an atheist. And so he doesn't believe that any of these things can actually hurt him after he's, you know, dead and gone. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, but, uh, you know, having said all of that, you know, it's, it's a very, um, you know, entertaining maybe is not the right word, but, um, and I definitely wouldn't call it enjoyable, but very intriguing podcast and something that, um, explores um you know why why life takes people in different directions and and how and and you know I, I think more than anything to me I was fascinated by the fact that 
this, I mean, he was really a savant. I mean, this, this genius of a man was living essentially in isolation in Alabama. And, um, and, you know, the fact that, um, you know, he was able to live this very rich intellectual life, even though it seemed like he was completely void of a community that shared his intellect or interests. Um, it's, it's just, it's like a rare diamond in the rough. You know, how does that exist? How does that happen? And, um, you know, and I, I would encourage anyone um, who's interested in um, that type of storytelling, especially if you like serial. It's a very different kind of podcast, but it's it's not true crime, um, but it's definitely a similar way of storytelling. And you feel like you're on this kind of mystery pursuit along with the reporter. Um, I'd encourage you to listen to it. I think it's very well done. Um, I also, you know, um, recently was listening to podcasts that ironically feature Friends of Shark and Minnow, um, you know, one of them is a new podcast that, um, bear with me, one of them is a new podcast um, that's called Mentoring Moments, and it's hosted by Denise Rastori, who's the founder of Girlquake, and it's actually, uh, it's a Forbes um a Forbes-produced podcast, and she features conversations with successful women from multiple generations that share their wow-you-need-to-know-this stories um, and works to, you know, quote, amplify the voices of women who are shaking things up, unquote. So she recently um, had a guest on air that is very familiar to us um, because she's a very close friend and former roommate of mine from college, um, B. Arthur, who's the founder of In Your Corner, um, as well as Pretty Padded Room, and she also is a contributor to Fox News now, um, and just a general badass. <laughs> so um, I thought it, you know, I, I, I learned about it through my feed, ironically, on Facebook. We were just talking about this as being a good news source, and, um, you know, and I it, it directed me to this podcast, and I would listen to it, and I thought that um, what was what was nice about this podcast is that, um, you know, it, it, it kind of channels the importance of mentoring, especially for entrepreneurs, um, and recognizes the fact that um, people at various stages of their entrepreneurial or business journey still have a lot of wisdom to share. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a mentoring relationship that is always top down. Um, I think that B specifically on the episode that, w that I was listening to had a lot of really smart things to say about what do you learn when an entrepreneurial venture fails and how do you come back from that and um, why, you know, you should keep your head up and, um, and, you know, how to look at, you know, the experiences that you sort of collect um, and place in your basket as you move forward. At the moment, she's starting a think tank devoted to mental health. Um, and that's her subject area of expertise. And, you know, frankly, I don't know that it would have been possible with all these other experiences that she's um, gone through as an entrepreneur. Um, and she's endured some like some tough things, but she's also just, you know, had some a lot of success. And I think it was incredibly brave to go and, and, and do this interview and talk about those things. And so it was very real. Um, and I really um, enjoyed listening to it. Um, both as a friend and a fan of what she does, as well as, you know, just in general, um, because of the subject matter. So I think if you're, you know, definitely if you're an entrepreneur, but anybody in business, I think could benefit from listening to that podcast. And, you know, the third thing I've been listening to recently is um, a new podcast that was put out um, by Stoked Mentoring founder Steve LaRosillier, right. um, who we also know and adore. Um, Steve um, founded Stoked um, must have been like 
10 years ago i can't even forever ago forever ago i i'm sure it says so on their on their website so you could check it out but stoke mentoring is a really cool organization um and it exists in multiple cities they actually just launched in chicago but um you know i think it was founded in la and it exists in new york and um, and you know, what they do is they pair up, um, kind of continuing on this mentoring theme, they pair up, um, adults and children, um, to have a shared new experience together and to forge a bond and create mentorship opportunities through, um, a shared new experience, which is typically through alternative sports like surfing or skateboarding. And there are celebrities in those worlds that are, have also been involved with Stoke over time. And, um, you know, Steve has just done an incredible job of, of growing this organization. And recently, Steve, you know, has sort of evolved what Stoked is and has developed this podcast. And the topic of the podcast is encouraging people to be fearless leaders. And I think that he's very appropriate um, sort of host of, you know, kind of ushering in this new wave of leadership um, I think that, you know, he's done it with a lot of kindness and generosity. And, um, you know, I think he's got a lot of wisdom to share. So I'm really enjoying that podcast as well. Um, encourage you to s- use whatever um, a podcast platform you like to use and sign up for all three. And of course, continue listening to us here at Open Swim. Yeah. So speaking about leaders and leading brands, Um, You know, we've talked a lot about established brands on this podcast and, you know, things that they've done to kind of shake things up. And there's been a big shakeup over at Crayola. And I think it's really interesting. This is a very emotionally charged issue, much like many of the issues we've talked about on this podcast. So, Brian, tell us what's happening over at Crayola. Well, I think we should have a moment of silence for Dandelion because after debuting in 1990, on March 30th, 2017, it was announced that Dandelion is retiring to that field in the coloring sky. Oh, oh. no. Absolutely. R.I.P. So, R.I.P. But they're, it, they're choosing to describe it as retirement. It's not, you know, <laughs> so many people are, you know, sad and there's been the obituaries and tributes posted. But according to Crayola, um, Dandelion simply has a case of wanderlust and an adventurous spirit. So um, they, he, he, she is um, off to just explore uh, Where are they going? new Where lines they going? to color in, if you will. Um, but I just find it interesting because Crayola is such a beloved brand. I don't think there's any reason anybody could hate Crayola. Like, who hates Crayola? Who hates crayons? Who hates coloring? Um, there's such a familiarity to it. And, you know, not to overuse the word iconic, but they, it is iconic. And Eric and I have talked about, you know, when you see a crayon, what do you think of? You think of the wax, the point of the crayon. And those infamous wavy stripes that yeah. crown each side of the 
of the crayon itself. And, you know, Eric and Hallie having a nearly three-year-old have been in many a restaurant where you get a pack of crayons and they're not often Crayola, I assume, no. but what is on those crayons? Those stripes. Those stripes are there. So even though they're not the branded Crayola crayons, that's just, you know, it's almost like that the idea of Jello instead of gelatin or Kleenex instead of tissue. Like people think like, you know, everything is, and if every crayon is made by Crayola and it's, and even these brands, these quote unquote off brands, I acknowledge that, but with the creation of these, the striping on on the paper itself but i think what's so funny about is the way that the news broke so there was a you know crayola had been teasing that there was a big announcement coming on friday march 31st um unfortunately a consumer was at target where they posted a photo of the of the large box of crayons and literally on the packaging it said dandelion is retiring get it now so they you know instead of just having the crayon quietly go away they really did do a large campaign around this um and unfortunately you know there was a a savvy shopper caught it and um, put it out there and but again genius um marketing response especially in these recent days of uh some you know larger companies having some issues out there and maybe not putting out the proper press releases as quickly as they should crayola had a very clever response to to that that leak if you will when that photo from target leaked crayola had a such a spot-on and smart on-brand response you know instead of ignoring it or you know making a serious issue out of the fact that it it, it had leaked a a day earlier, um, Jackie Miller, who's the spokesperson for Crayola, um, said that, quote, Dandelion was so excited to announce his retirement, he snuck a few packages out of the factory and onto the shelves of a handful of his favorite retailers last night. One lucky fan came across the box and couldn't wait to share the news with the world, and neither could we, unquote. That, to me, is so smart um, because it it acknowledges the excitement that's out there. The fact that a shopper saw that and reacted to, you know, the, the fact that this color is going away yeah. and um, they, they've injected this life and this personality into something so abstract as a color. And the fact that, and I think what's fantastic about this is something that could have easily just been done under the radar. People may not have noticed it. It's, it's suddenly everybody's talking about Crayola again. And and I think why it is so smart is it is something that for as long as it's been around, their brand isn't broke. Why fix it? So they're, they're never needing to like do a new and improved crayon. You know, it, it is what it is. So something like this has suddenly everybody's talking about Crayola again. And it's, you know, for me, and I think a lot of people that have talked about it, there is something about the, the sight of a crayon, the smell of a crayon. It just, there's that emotional, uh, connection back to your childhood and to maybe a simpler time. I think that's why adult coloring books are becoming yeah. a whole new popular market. You know, that's really popped up in the past few years. Did they so, ever give a reason why Mr. Dandelion or Ms. Dandelion is retiring? You know, well, according to their quote, it is a boy. So Dandy. <laughs> Dandelion. Um, other than his case of wanderlust, they really have not. So, did you know, they replace I, with another color? Or it will, and that's we're about to hit May, and they're announcing the new color in May. We know that it's blue because on that box that Shopper had posted, it said "Name the new color for a chance to win," and you saw that it's going to be a blue crayon. Um, 
so and they're making like obviously they're making a contest out of that to continue the conversation and, and to continue that interactivity with their with their customers the idea is mixing it up putting something fresh in but i think more than anything it's all about this conversation that they've created and the this engagement you know people are suddenly paying attention more than they have in quite a while to a product like crayola if you don't have children you know or you're not a teacher or whatnot i would imagine you don't interact with that brand very much but i you know and even me as a grown artist i don't you know i don't think about crayola that much but actually i was saying was when this news broke you know I did feel re- this reaction to it and um, because I went back and, and Eric and I were talking about this as well. Like, wow, they, that was my first tool that I used as a, as a, you know, a as young artist, as a young, yeah, as a young artist figuring out what I was liking. I'm like, oh, that was like my first uh, foray into what I've dedicated my life to. So something so simple is actually a, it's got a lot, I think a deeper meaning. And I think that's like several brands out there. You know, I think one of their greatest products is the connection a person has, even if they don't engage with the product anymore, as I don't, um, you still have this reverence for it. My bigger boat this episode goes out to Chief Calvin Williams of the Cleveland Police. Um, I thought he did an amazing job when we had the NBA Finals here in Cleveland and then when we had the RNC and then most recently with uh, the issue of the Facebook killer, he just did an amazing job speaking to the press and being articulate about the situation and um, ensuring Clevelanders that uh, we were safe and they had a a solution in place. And I would just like to point out that last summer, when Hallie and I braved the <laughs> 10 million people that all uh, flocked down to downtown Cleveland to see the Cavs Victory Parade, we may have not seen the parade due to the fact that, A, the parade was so low to the ground. <laughs> they were uh, in and, cars. And, and they were in cars, and we were a, a good 20 people away from the curb. But he walked right in front of Hallie and I, and we couldn't have been more starstruck. And to us, <laughs> the parade was a success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. He's pretty exceptional. My, my bigger boat goes to Katy Perry, who's looking fabulous on the cover of the May issue of Vogue. And uh, in the issue, she is wearing a wonderful, amazing collection of clothes um, from Comme des Garçons, which um, the artistic force um, behind that Japanese label is Rei Kawakubo, and I just want to mention that because the Met Gala is coming up, and um, she is the theme of this year's Met Gala. So hmm. go get the May issue of Vogue. Katy Perry is looking amazing, and the clothes in there are just to go gaga over. My bigger boat this week goes out to Friends of Shark and Minnow, CLE Clothing Company, who have been spreading Cleveland Pride one t-shirt at a time as their mission speaks to. They had the fantastic surprise of one of their t-shirts being featured on Miles Garrett from Texas A&M, who was the NFL first round draft pick yesterday. And that thought that was a fantastic, not only nod to the city that he's about to come hopefully save for the, all those wary Browns fans out there, but a, just a great 
acknowledgement of a very positive company that you, I don't think there's a day goes by that I don't see at least 10 people sporting either a t-shirt or a hoodie. So congratulations to Mike and Laura from CLE Clothing Company. And this new guy, this NFL draft pick, I love him for wearing the CLE t-shirt and also for the fact that his favorite musicians are Marvin Gaye and Anita Baker. I love this. I think I have my first official fandom for a Browns player. Let's go watch. Let's watch some sport, Brown. Are you ready? <laughs> go dogs. Yeah. <laughs> they sound like real <laughs> Do you think they'll play Anita Baker when he comes out onto the field? I sure hope so. Only what track to choose? <laughs> Sweet Love. Is that a name of a track? What is that one? Sweet Love. None of this is allowed in here. <laughs> This week, my bigger boat goes out to Radiohead because whether or not you know it, we are coming up on the 20th anniversary of OK Computer, which is insanity because it was one of the most significant albums of my life as a teenager. (laughs) So what's kind of cool is there are all these conspiracy theories out there right now. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this in the news, but basically there are these posters popping up in cities like Berlin, London, Amsterdam, and Brooklyn um, that, you know, everyone's saying that they're popping up because, um, you know, it's uh, kind of this like subversive um, advertising for Radiohead and they they have content that reads a bit like the fitter, happier, more productive track Uh um, on OK Computer. And um, it says 1997 to 2017. And so that's what, you know, people are saying this is all about. So it remains to be seen if this is a tie into their 20th anniversary, although if it's not, um, it's quite coincidental that this is popping up. And regardless, it gives you a reason to revisit that awesome, awesome, legendary, in my opinion, album. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at Groundworks Dance Theater, who are having their annual benefit this upcoming Saturday. It will have passed by the time this airs, um, but we are so excited for them and hope that they well exceed their fundraising goals this year. Groundworks Dance Theater is imagination that you can see. Critically celebrated as an artistically significant ensemble, Groundworks explores the nuances of the human experience through unique and adventurous choreography. This exciting, eclectic work brings audiences face-to-face with fresh, fascinating performances of passion, intellect, and humor. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow. On the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. <laughs>